The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. I have had such an enjoyable weekend, enjoyable last, last couple weekends, and last night I got to go to a barn dance with one of our uh, small groups that's reaching out in the Sunbury area. had a great, enjoyable time there, a little sore today, but... Uh, all of the things that I learned in middle school and high school from square dancing came all back to me. It was fun. And on Friday night, I got to uh, celebrate what's going on with uh, one of the ministries that uh, is so important to us, Orphan World Relief. Doug's here this morning, and Doug had his uh, annual uh, banquet uh, for OWR and such an enjoyable time, such a remarkable time of what God has done through that ministry, helping uh, the plight of orphans all over the world, and, and uh, Doug, that was just a joy to be with you Friday night. And uh, the previous Sunday evening, we had our vision night, had a great turnout and response. Thank you so much for those of you that were able to join us on that night. Out on our Welcome Center, we pass out what we call our annual report on that evening, and if uh, you weren't there, be sure to pick one of these up. Uh, it's a great uh, introduction to who we are, to the things that we're involved in, to our partnerships around the world, and I encourage you to pick one of these up, even if you're uh, a guest here. This will give you a great picture of uh, the things that we're engaged in. So that was a, a joy to be with you on that night as well. Okay, tonight's or today's topic is called Happy Giving. In the book by Henry Cloud entitled The Law of Happiness, he tells the following story. When my oldest daughter Olivia was about three or four, she attended a half-day preschool for a few days a week. One day before I took her, for some reason, we got into a conversation about sharing. We talked about how you can share all sorts of things with others, from love to helping someone to sharing cookies and toys. I suggested that when she was at school that day, she find someone to share something with. I thought it was one of those normal father-daughter talks I didn't think too much about. After preschool, as we were walking around the neighborhood, she began to tell me about her day. And she told me she had made some cookies and how much she loved them. Then she told me that she saw one of the kids didn't have any for some reason, so she walked over and gave some of her cookies to him. I thought it was nice, but not earth-shattering. She had shared things before. What she said next, however, was, Daddy, something happened. I don't know what it is. She gave me a serious look. What, Livy? Or what, Livy? What, What happened? I asked. Well, when I gave Brandon the cookies, I felt something in here, right here. She immediately pointed to her little chest. It felt really warm in here. What was that? She asked. When I heard that, I actually felt like I was going to break apart in tears. But I managed to hold them back. That was love, Livy. That is what you feel inside when you give things to people. It makes you feel warm and nice inside. It feels really good, she said. I want to do that some more. I like it. (laughs) What a great moment for any parent. 
And what a great moment for that little girl. Our culture, through movies and literature, repeatedly asks the question, is it possible to be happy without being generous? Not drawing an answer from Scripture or a religious book, but by simply observing human behavior and emotion, the answer repeatedly is no. We cannot be happy without being generous. It is a moral tale told by people both with faith and without faith. In the best-selling book, The How of Happiness, which is based on an impressive amount of research, the author developed ten traits that distinguish happy people from unhappy people. Generosity is not there by name, but it is in the soil of several of the traits, such as learning to forgive, nurturing relationships, and practicing random acts of kindness. Now, generosity is not something we have to wonder about in its ability to generate happiness. It is good for your mood, soul, and body. Cloud, Henry Cloud points to research showing that giving, serving, and helping is related to mental health, and those who help others have less stress, anxiety, and depression. Now, I don't believe you need someone with a PhD to convince you of that. You know it because it matches your own experience. Perhaps you can remember the first time you opened your heart and gave without expectation. And you might remember that rush of feeling that came over you. As a matter of fact, it's uh, been shown it's been shown that our brain is actually wired to produce that feeling. The pleasure centers of the brains, of the brain, brains if you have two, brain if you have one. <laughs> the pleasure center, or half if you have half, the pleasure centers of the brain, the ones that respond to food and sex, also light up when people think of giving to others. Now, the Christian story tells us that God hardwired us that way. Again, Henry Cloud says this, God has actually hooked up your brain in a way that makes you feel good when you give. And he goes on to say this, that we are wired for a happy life. Sometimes we just have to learn what a happy life looks like. Now, non-Christians, people without faith, understand this scripture. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And there are many happy non-Christians who practice this habit. They have asked the question, is it possible to be happy without being generous? And they have answered no. But as Christians, we ask a different question, right? Right? We ask a different question. We ask, is it possible to be godly? without being generous. For to be like Jesus is our ultimate prize. Can we at the same time be Christ-like and remain stingy with our time, cling to our resources, and resist blessing others with our words? Well, Scripture is very conclusive. The answer is no. Not only 
can we not be like God, but we also cannot be happy. For we believe that God is the greatest giver in the universe. And that is part of the reason that He is supremely happy. Therefore, we cannot be happy without giving like Him. Here's a truth I want to chisel in our hearts this morning, Linworth. Generosity is a signature quality of the spiritual life. Generosity is a signature quality of the spiritual life. We cannot be like Jesus without being radically generous. Now, to dig deep into this, I'd like you to turn to or follow on the screen Ezekiel chapter 18. And what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to spend almost all my time on the first of these, but we're going to talk about why, the why, the where, and the how of a happy giver. The why, the where, and the how of a happy giver. So as you're turning there and as you get there, let's pray. And uh, pray once again and ask the Father to open up our hearts and give us the capacity to hear this morning. Father, we say good morning again to you. Thank you for the prayers and the worship that's already been directed to you. And I pray that we could come before you today as a church family, humbly before you, recognizing how we need you so much. Father, I need you so much. We need you. Everything in us is bent towards taking. Everything in us is bent towards self-gratification. And Father, if we're to live a different way, if we're to become truly happy givers, Father, you've got to make and create a picture in our minds and then give us the power of the Spirit to Follow after that picture of what it looks like to be selfless, what it looks like to be a giver. And so, Father, this morning, whatever obstacles there might be, we might be tired, we might be distracted, we might be burdened, whatever's keeping us this morning from listening, whatever would be keeping me from being simply a humble vessel through whom you could use, Father, remove all those things so that we can grow together as a church body and church family to become a giving community. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me give you the context of Ezekiel 18, just briefly. And again, this is the why of being a happy giver. The Jewish prophet Ezekiel in this passage is comparing a righteous father with his unrighteous son. And he's doing it to illustrate that each one of us is responsible for our own actions. The son is not held responsible for his father's sin, nor the other way around. The writer actually extends it to a third generation, the grandson of the first man, who is righteous, unlike his father, but like his grandfather. And so what we have here in outline form is really intriguing we have the description of a truly spiritual person, someone like God, someone pleasing to God in outline form. If you've ever wondered what does a life 
devoted to God looks like. Here is an Old Testament portrayal of that very thing. And so I'm going to read the verses comparing the first two, the Father and the Son. And I'm going to read this from a version of the Bible called The Message. And it will help us uh, contemporize this account. Then I'm going to refer to the wording of several other versions too where that will be helpful. And again, um, women just apply this sort of in reverse. So this is meant to apply to men and women alike, but they use the male uh, gender here as, as, as a lead. Okay, beginning in verse 5, the outline of a righteous man. Imagine a person who lives well, treats others fairly, keeping good relationships. He doesn't eat at the pagan shrines. He doesn't worship the idols so popular in Israel. He doesn't seduce a neighbor's spouse. He doesn't indulge in casual sex. He doesn't bully anyone. Doesn't pile up bad debts. Doesn't steal. Doesn't refuse food to the hungry. Doesn't refuse clothing to the ill-clad. Doesn't exploit the poor. Doesn't live by impulse and greed. Doesn't treat one person better than another. But lives by my statutes and faithfully honors and obeys my laws. This person who lives upright and well shall live a full and true life. This is a decree of God, the Master. But if this person has a child who turns violent and murders and goes off and does any of these things, even though the parent has done none of them, he eats at the pagan's shrine, he seduces his neighbor's wife, he bullies the weak, he steals, he piles up bad debts, he admires idols, he commits outrageous obscenities, he exploits the poor. Do you think this person, this child, will live Not a chance. Because he's done all these vile things, he'll die. And his death will be his own fault. You can see clearly how the author makes his point about individual accountability. But look at the progression of the person pleasing to God. Where does it begin? The progression here is intentional. It begins with his worship. He worships God purely. He worships God for God and doesn't try to make God into what he wants. He worships God for God and he doesn't worship a Gumby God that's bent and twisted and turned around whatever the prevailing cultural tide or opinion of the day is. Secondly, look at what's next. He's faithful to his wife. True worship inspires faithfulness and loyalty. Worship brings order to our affections. They are in the right place. His sexual ethics are driven neither by impulse nor culture, but in surrender to God. There is order in his home because things are placed in proper relationship to one another. Thirdly, worshiping God impacts not only his family, but his relationship with the poor or the vulnerable. And particularly if he's a leader, those he leads. Here it says he does not bully anyone. The ESV says he does not oppress anyone. He gives everyone the gift 
of respect and dignity, no matter how old, weak, or lacking in intellect, or lacking in social skills. There is no powering up on people in business, the business world. If he rents property, he rents it at a fair price. If he pays a wage, he pays a fair price. Four, it impacts his honesty. This is interesting. It impacts his honesty when people loan or borrow, I should say borrow, when people borrow money from him. He returns whatever collateral was given for the loan. Now, this is interesting. You see, this entails that you would never make a loan that you knew the person could not repay. Now, that's a principle we followed would have saved us from the 2008 housing crisis, right? Yep. Now, on an individual level, some people like keeping others indebted to them so they can control them. They pile up bad debts for a purpose. In the ancient world, personal lending was construed as a way to benefit the borrower. I'm sorry, to benefit the one, I got my things confused here, to benefit the lender. In God's economy, however, the one needing funds, the borrower, is viewed as a brother in need, a sister in need, not a vulnerable commodity to become rich from. This is what he's getting at here. Five. Next, this man does not steal. He is thoroughly honest in his business dealings. He does not undersell or overpromise. He pays his full share of his taxes. He does not cheat his employer. He's a man of his word. Six. He helps the needy. Other versions position this in the positive. The New Living Translation says simply he gives food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He is generous to the poor. He does not look on his giving as merely charity. As one who worships God purely, he is so aware of his own spiritual poverty. And he's filled with gratitude to God because of it. He understands everything he owns is a gift from God that he does not deserve. Therefore, he does not look at his disadvantaged brother or sister with any self-righteousness or contempt. When he sees a person in financial disrepair, he is slow to judge. And he avoids labeling people. And as one who is just and right, he is particularly moved by those who are in poverty because of injustice. He has a desire to set things right since he worships a God who loves righteousness and justice. Now the wording here is interesting, isn't it? The wording, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Where have we heard that phrasing before? Well, you can find it, many of you know it, in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. The sheep and the goats were separated on the day of judgment to the right and to the left. And how were they divided? How were they divided? 
They were divided based on their response to Jesus. Not the actual person of Jesus, but as Jesus came to them, embodied in the poor and the vulnerable. There too, as in this passage, there is a separation of those who will live and those who will die. The sheep will live because they met the needs of the poor and vulnerable. The goats will die because they closed their hearts. This passage reveals that genuine faith manifests itself in a changed attitude towards the weak and towards the vulnerable. And again, keep in mind, when Christ used this phrase poor, he used it in a broad way. He used it to describe those that are physically poor, and he used it to describe those who are spiritually poor. Seven. Again, it says he does not exploit the poor Or as in the ESV, it says, he does not lend money at interest or take any profit. Again, because he views the one who's borrowing from him as his brother, not as one to extract a profit from. Eight, he does not let greed or impulse get the better of him. He has possessions, he has what he needs, but his greed does not blind him or close his heart to the needs of others. Nine, he is not prejudicial in his treatment of others. He does not treat others unjustly. If he is in a position of power, if he owns a business or supervises others, if he has the power to police or to judge, if he has the power to render academic judgments, everyone gets the same opportunities and the same treatment. There is no such thing as privilege are being born on the wrong side of the tracks in his mind. Where does he get this idea? Where is it reinforced? He gets it from worship. Because he worships a God, he sees a God who crowns all humanity, all humanity with beauty and glory and worth. Every creature, no matter how low, no matter how unfortunate, bears his image. It impacts the way he treats every person. Now, this is the outline of the person that will live. Do you see the fabric of generosity woven all throughout this description? Generosity is so much more than a few hundred or a few thousand dollars given here and there. Generosity is a way of life that reflects the character of God. It is a signature quality of who God is. God is generous. We can be generous. This is interesting. We can be generous without being godly. Right? Think about it. There's lots of examples in our world. You can be generous without being godly, but you cannot be godly without being generous. I thought it's interesting also here. I thought it was interesting that there's nothing mentioned in here of the tithe. And if you're unacquainted with that term, each Israelite in the old Hebrew economy, each Israelite was to give 10% from the first fruit of their harvest. And that would have been a staple offering made as a part of their responsibility for the upkeep 
of the temple and those who served in it. Now, it could be that the tithe is implied in his pure worship. But its absence here could serve to remind us that the tithe itself does not make us a generous person. See, there's a misnomer that I have fallen into that we can fall into. We tithe. We give our 10%. And then we check generosity off the list. And this is where we make our error. We assume that we own the rest. And we spend the remaining 90% completely on ourselves in self-indulgence. Self-indulgence in time and self-indulgence in money. We feel the right to buy and own whatever we want without any concern for the physically or the spiritually poor. I read a story this past week. It's a funny story. I, I, I remember this being in the news, but in 2005, you know who Robert Kraft is? The owner of the New England Patriots. They, I don't know how many rings he's got of Super Bowl rings. And if you've seen those big rings, you would never wear it in public. It's so massive. Well, in 2005, Robert Kraft was visiting Vladimir Putin, the, the president of Russia. And he took the ring off for a moment, and he gave it for Putin to look at and to inspect and to see. And uh, this is what Bob Kraft reports. He, he held on to it at the request of the government for seven years, didn't share it. State Department asked him not to, but he eventually shared it anyway. This is what he says. I, I have no idea why he would make this up, but he said that Putin took that ring, put it on his finger, looked at it, said, this is big enough to kill someone. And then he got up, he put it in his pocket, he got up, his KGB guard surrounded him, and he walked out of the room. And he never gave it back. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. But the reality is that's what we do. We think we own something that does not belong to us. As crazy as that is, it's as crazy as we think as believers that we own what God has given to us. Now, I believe the tithe is important. Malachi says that when we hold it back, we are in fact robbing God. But tithing is way more than doing God a favor. When our actions reflect an attitude that we have done our necessary sacrifice and thus we are off the hook for anything else, that is terribly offensive to God. He wants all of us. He wants all of you. And all we own is His. The tithe, when we give it, was meant to remind us of that. The tithe is a place to begin our worship, not to end it. That framework of worship, giving my heart to God, is the essence of what transforms us from takers to givers. Be it with people, be it with time, be it with money. When we genuinely worship, that is what ignites the transformation to move us from takers and to move us to be happy, happy, happy givers. So this is the why of being a radical giver. And when we give as God gives, we experience His happiness. 
Let me just briefly mention the where and the how. Just going to spend a moment on each of these. What is the arena? Where is the arena of the happy giver? Well, we've already mentioned money to meet the needs of others. A second one is time. Time is a huge gift, and perhaps that's harder for some to give. While money may not be so difficult to give, time for others could be a very difficult commodity to lose. Time could mean that in order to give, it will mean loss of sleep or a diminishing of hobbies or favorite things to do or personal comfort in order to give time. Three, our words. We can be generous with our words. Wow. Nick did such a great job commenting on this a few weeks ago. Words of praise. Words of affirmation. I'm not sure why we're often so tight-fisted with our words when if we would allow the Spirit to release it, we could give so much through our words. For our use of possessions, we can give by sharing or giving away our possessions. Five, we can open up our homes as a way of releasing generosity. And six, it's our heart attitude towards others. See, this is the fabric of a generosity that is a daily, everyday habit. We can believe in others, see the best in them, never fail in our love for them, love them with a pure heart and a sincere faith. This is the arena of the happy giver. When we get the why right, and then we begin to manifest the where, we begin to step into the happiness of God, a generous God, a daily habit. And then thirdly, how do we give? What are the ethics of our giving? What are the ethics of our giving? How do we give? It's very simply in the how. We are guided by the cause of love. Love. Love is why we give. Love is how we give. It's how we decide where and to whom to give. Because it is a habit, a lifestyle, generosity will ooze from us as we experience the grace of God in our own lives. And radical generosity, radical generosity is driven not by our benefit, but by love. And this is captured so well in this verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you know this chapter. It's the love chapter. You hear it at weddings. But in verse 3, Paul makes this crazy, radical statement. He says, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body... Man, we'd look at that person and say, wow, that person is super spiritual. That person is super generous, right? Look at what he says. Oh, I could boast about that. But if I don't love others, I would have gained nothing. See, motive does matter. Motive does matter. You see, generosity particularly in these days, can be a way of gaining social acceptance. In some corners, it is seen to be hip and cool to be socially conscious. Social, social consciousness and giving has been woven into corporate marketing strategies. Giving can be seen as a resume boost for colleges or jobs. 
But radical giving, the giving that makes us happy, comes from self-forgetfulness. Doing it for the glory of God. And doing it for the ethic of love. When we worship, we see God as He is. Right? This is where it all begins with. When we worship purely, we begin to see God for who He is. And really, friends, this is the number one biggest challenge to our faith. Our faith. If we could boil down, you know, what's the difference between the way a Christian gives and the way our non-Christian neighbors give? It's faith. It's because of our faith. There's this whole vertical dimension to it with our non-Christian friends to whom we should not disparage their giving. Their giving is, is, is um, horizontal. But for us as believers, our giving is horizontal, but it's also vertical. It has a faith dimension to it. And we come to God and Believe that God, to believe that God is a radical giver, not a taker, not an exploiter. But He delights in working for your benefit. He dreams of how He could bless you. If we could but believe that, oh man, it would just change us so much, wouldn't it? It would change us if we could believe that. Now indeed, sometimes there are circumstances are unanswered prayers that test this belief that God is a radical giver towards you. Jesus was aware that this would take place. And he urged us not to give up on our faith, nor to give up on prayer. And he gave this little story as a way of illustrating it. It's from Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Jesus said this, you fathers, you daddies, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? It's kind of the proverbial, you know, coal in the stocking here. Jesus says, of course not. So if sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children... It assumes that we're in that category. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more? This is a if-then-how-much-more point of comparison. There was a video floating around on Facebook Friday featuring a really cool ministry, a prison ministry, obviously an offset of what Chuck Colson has done. It's in Michigan. And this ministry arranges for imprisoned dads to spend a day with their kids. How many? Anybody see that? A few of you. I dare not show it. I mean, there would not be a, you know, I mean, it's a long video and it's, a, it was, it's just so emotional, so moving, so inspirational. These dads had, have so much love for their kids and such a desire to hug them, to love them, to be with them, trying to squeeze years of lost time into a single day. Oh, man. And in the vulnerable moments, grieving over the decisions that got them, got them there. 
These dads were convicted felons, thieves, and even murderers. But despite their brokenness, despite their evil, they loved their kids. They loved them. It was evident. And they desired to give to them. What a vivid picture of Jesus' words. How much greater can he give us what we need? And he gives us a gift. He gives us a gift that every day secures for us life, that every day secures for us blessing, that every day secures for us power, a continual source of power that will never let up, that will never run dry, his Holy Spirit living inside of you. Can you picture a greater gift than that? Of course, the greatest gift of all in connection with the Holy Spirit, Jesus relayed in John 10, verse 18. John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. What is the opposite of take? Of course, it is to give. Older versions of this scripture say, I freely give my life. Jesus died on the cross without reluctance nor resentment. He was not surprised. He was not trapped into it. He did not fight the injustice of the illegal courts, both Jewish and Roman. He gladly gave up his life. This is the greatest gift that Jesus could ever give to us, the very gift of his own life, paid, paying for the debt that we owe. On the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the death, the life, and the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus through the bread and through the cup. This is a ceremony for believers. And Nick, you can work your whip. I actually forgot to have you come up, so i got to keep talking here for a few moments. (laughs) No, I'll just, I'm sorry. I'll just explain what we're going to do here. In a few moments, we're going to have you begin to come up and to take the bread and to take the cup. You can take it back to your seats, and uh, we'll take it together in a few moments. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, each given for our redemption, each given for the forgiveness of our sins. When we take it, we say that we have taken Christ inside of us through his Holy Spirit. Uh, If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come forward and to see how this all takes place. And uh, we're so glad you're here and and, and, and indeed, today, if you're ready to make that call, to make that decision, to invite Christ to be the center of your life, to be the leader of your life, then, then make today your very first day to take the bread and to take the cup as a brand new follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bread and thank you for the cup that we celebrate today. We love you. We entrust these next moments to you. In his name we pray. Amen.